Good morning, everybody. Okay, first service definitely had you. Good morning, everybody. Man, thank you for faking it for me. I am so glad that you did. Hey, my name's Austin. I am one of the teaching pastors here, and I am excited to talk about what we're talking about this morning. Here's the the teaser for you. Today, we are going to talk about the second most incredible news you will ever hear in your entire life. And you think, why not the best news? We're saving it for next week. It's Easter. All right, so here's what you need to know. Next week when you come back, do not do that alone. No one goes to church alone. Bring somebody with you because we're going to talk about the best news that they, your friends, will ever hear and the best news that you will ever hear. But today, you have to settle for second best, and it's still pretty good. Um, Let's go ahead and just take a second and pray as we dive in. God, I pray that you would make your scripture come alive today. God, no matter what we brought in with us, I pray that you would zero us in on what you have to say. Lord, I pray you would send your Holy Spirit to us to help us to hear, um, to help us to grow, God, to make us into the people you desire us to be. Lord, have your way here today. Amen. Uh, About 14 months ago, I think it was about a year ago in February, uh, I had uh, been on a trip to Texas, hanging out in Texas with a bunch of guys from our church uh, that we were working at at the time in Kansas. And just before I left, our son Miles uh, started getting a little sick. And anybody been a parent, remember that first time your kid got sick? It's like kind of unnerving, you know, they're so cute and they're lovable. And, and then all of a sudden they're helpless, you know, you just want to step in. And, and so it didn't look like it was too bad. And so I went ahead and went on my trip. Ashley had miles and about a day and a half into this conference we were at, Ashley called and she said, Austin, miles isn't getting better. His fever's like 104 and he just, he's really having a hard time breathing. And I've taken him to the ER and I think they're going to admit him. I need your help. And so I left all my pals down there uh, in Texas, and I hopped on a plane, and I flew back. And I remember just being really anxious about the whole thing. Miles had never been sick before, and I'd never been a parent to a sick kid before and didn't know what to do. And in my mind, I thought it would work like this. As soon as I got there, things would get better. If I could just be in the room with my son, I could fix everything. That's what we really want as parents. And And I remember when I got there, I walked into the hospital room and I sat down and here's Miles. Ain't cute. He's so cute. Nothing like his father. And and so we're in this hospital room and, and what became incredibly apparent very quickly was that I had absolutely nothing to contribute to my son getting better. There was nothing I could personally do and things didn't get better quickly at all. As a matter of fact, Miles spent the next 10 days and nights in the hospital. And here's what I got to do. I got to sit down and do nothing. I watched a great and incredible nursing staff come in and take care of him every hour on the hour. And I watched doctors come in and help him every you know, day, a couple times a day. And I watched respiratory therapists come in and do what they knew how to do. And I neither knew how to do or had the equipment to do. And, and while I was so, so grateful for the team that cared for Miles so well, I felt absolutely useless. And I just wanted to make my kid feel better. Anybody, parents, you ever, you ever been there? There are a few things that we experience in life as unnerving as being dependent on someone else. I mean, the idea of needing anyone else for anything in our lives kind of flies in the face of what we're really trained to believe as Americans. It's the opposite in, in many ways of the American way. 
We're trained in our culture that we can do everything we want to do on our own. As a culture, we celebrate the entrepreneur. We look up to the men and women who seem to be self-made men or self-made women or the people that can pull themselves up, as we say, by their bootstraps. We celebrate that. We applaud it. We write books. We make movies. There's even a television network, maybe you watch it, I love it, called the DIY Network. Do it yourself. We grow up believing that if we just try hard enough or or put enough effort in that we can accomplish anything on our own or we whisper into the ears of our children, you just believe it enough, you can be anything you want to be. But here's the question. Is it true? I mean, we don't want to shortchange our kids and we don't want to sell them on a future that's less than what they could achieve. But can we really, left to our own devices, do anything we want? Can our children, despite all of our telling, can they actually be anything they ever dreamed of being on their own? The answer, I believe, is simply no. Now, there are all kinds of things that we can do, and our efforts and our investments and our practice and our hard work really does pay off. But left to our own, there are things we find that we cannot simply do. In the last presidential election, one of the things that Hillary Clinton was most remembered for, both by Republicans and by Democrats, is not all of the stances she took, but a comment she made in her past that said this, that it takes a village. And in many ways, that's true. There's a reason, bipartisanly, we remember that statement, because you were never intended to accomplish everything you face in life by yourself, nor was I. See, here's the reality that we all come to grips with sooner or later. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how strong you are, or how great your intelligence may be. Sooner or later, we will all need someone else's help to accomplish something we face in life. We cannot do everything on our own. And you've discovered it in the same ways that I've discovered it. Maybe, maybe you discovered it when, when you opened up your refrigerator um, and, and you pulled out that jar of pickles that was uniquely made just for you out of some space-age titanium metal that, that no human being left to their own strength can open on their own. And it's just you and the jar of pickles. And thank goodness your wife has that grip, you know? Now you can have pickles. Thank you. Um, maybe it's, maybe you're like me and you got short people problems. All you tall people, you'll never get this, but you open up the cabinet and there's that glass you need somewhere up there in heaven. And you're like, I don't know, I'm going to do this. Either I need to be a gymnast or jump a little higher or or someone's going to have to give me a boost and you need help. Maybe someone lifts you up. Maybe someone brings you a chair to stand on. Or, or maybe you've experienced this. This is common for me. Every time I go to Cracker Barrel, they put that dumb little triangle with the golf tees in it. I am an ignoramus every single time until, until I listen to my wife. And she said, don't move the peg there. Anybody need help to get out of the ignoramus category? See, the reality is there are things in life that we do need help with. And sometimes, sometimes they're small. Sometimes they're lightweight. Sometimes they don't bother us much to ask about. But there are other areas in our lives that are deeply personal that at times can be very, very difficult to ask for help in. Maybe you've experienced a moment in life where you need financial help. And you don't know in your own power how to make ends meet. 
And you got to go to somebody and ask, whether it's a friend or a family member or a parent or whoever. Just say, look, I, I need help. That's hard to do. There are times we'll face in marriage that to have the healthiest marriage possible, to move forward in a, in a healthy manner, to have a marriage that endures beyond the crisis that we face here and now today, it will take someone helping us. Be that a marriage counselor, be it a mentor, be it a friend, be it someone that can help make sense of sometimes the mess we find ourselves in. We will find ourselves, some of us at times, to be trapped in a prison of addiction. And we give our best efforts and we have a good try and it lasts for a month and fails you know, a week later or whatever that may be. For some of us, it's pornography. For some of us, it's an eating disorder. For some of us, it, it could be drugs or alcohol or anything else that we can't seem to stop being a part of. And to be able to exit the prison of addiction, we're going to need someone else to hold us by the hand and walk us out through the highs and through the lows we face in the midst of it. And here's what's so incredible. The same moments in our lives, the same request for help that gives us freedom that we had not previously experienced, those same moments are the very same ones that leave us feeling vulnerable, that leave us incredibly anxious, that leave us feeling incredibly uncomfortable. But why? Knowing that we're all gonna need help, knowing that this life wasn't designed to walk through alone, knowing that everyone else reaches those moments at times as well. Why is it so hard? And, and here's what I've come to gather. It's so hard to ask for help at times because we know that, that doing so is somewhat unfair. Why should my parents fit the bill for a financial mess that I've made? Why should someone else have to invest their time and listen to my problems to untangle the marriage that really, in many ways, I contributed to the conflict of? Why should someone who's achieved sobriety on their own or outside of my involvement ever give their time to help me get out of this cycle of addiction? Why? And we know at the bottom of our hearts for someone else to do those things for us at some level, it's unfair to ask of them. But, but here's the truth. And I, it, no matter what you're facing today, I, I want you to recognize this and understand this. When it comes to a life crisis, when it comes to a crossroads in our lives, fair no longer matters. It doesn't matter that someone else made the investment earlier. What matters is someone's willing to make the investment in us. We're going to have Bibles coming down the aisle here, and we're going to take a look for a few moments this morning at a story in Matthew that is one of the most unfair ever in history. If you need a Bible, we just make those available to you. Just raise your hand. We'll pass one down to you, and you can even keep it. We'd encourage you to take it home with you. In Matthew, we see the most unfair, unfair event in history collide with the greatest point of human need. And we see a story begin to unfold of two men who, who have a few things in common, but by and large are widely different people. We see one man who, who is on trial and, and this man standing next to him who is also on trial. And, and they're widely different people. And yet what we find is at the end of this exchange, one person will go free forever and the other one will be condemned to their death. Check out what happens. Matthew 27, 15. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. 
And as the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Now, if you look in your footnotes, what you'll see is that Barabbas' name was actually bigger than Barabbas. We see on this platform, Jesus, who's called Messiah, and we see another one called Jesus Barabbas. They shared a first name. It's almost like Matthew wants us to take note of that. He wants us to see that these men share this thing in common because everything, everything about their lives from that point forward is different. What we find is that these two men should have never crossed paths. They should have never been in the same social circles. They should have never shared the same trial. They should have never had the outcomes that faced them at the same time. See, we see Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas literally means this, son of a father. That's kind of a unique name in Jewish culture. Oftentimes, you are named after your father. So you'd be son of Mark or son of Matthew or son of Moses or whoever your father's name was. It was kind of a point of dignity to be named after your father. And yet Matthew points out this man is kind of anonymous. You never hear about him before. His name's never mentioned again. And as he describes him, it says his name is Jesus Brabus, son of a random father, just some guy, a nobody. And yet here he is standing on trial on the very same steps as Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah literally meaning deliverer, the hero. The widespread attention Jesus got quickly earned him the name the Son of God. And now in the same place, we see the Son of some guy standing next to the Son of God on trial, both trying to figure out who's going to live and who will die. You've got Barabbas known by the sum of his crimes and Jesus known for the great sum of his love. Notoriously violent Barabbas stands next to the notorious healer, Jesus. Barabbas, who in other books are, tell us that he was a murderer who took life, is on trial next to Jesus who literally gave life, brought back the dead to men like Lazarus. We've got a leader of a revolt standing next to a teacher of peace. Not in a million years, not in their wildest imaginations, not in the craziest movies ever written would we imagine a man like Barabbas standing next to a man like Jesus. It was wrong. It was unfair. It was blasphemy. And yet what we've seen so far is only the beginning. Check this out. Matthew 27 going on in verse 20, it says this. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. And Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. 
And this is one of the most bizarre twists in a story that you can ever imagine. See, what we see are three men standing on the stage. There's Pilate, who's a Roman governor, a Roman official. Romans were constantly at odds with the Jewish people. All the time they were fighting and there were these revolts and they were always having to put them down. The Jewish people were disdained by the Romans. And yet the the scene that begins to unfold is so unbelievably unfair to this Roman official that he begins to advocate for Jesus. He goes to his defense. I mean, this was political suicide. Not only did Romans not advocate for Jews, but Barabbas had led a revolt that had already been put down. All of his followers were killed. If Barabbas went free, who cares? No one would follow him anywhere. But here's Jesus, who many called the king of the Jews, who when he spoke, thousands showed up. When he showed up somewhere, it'd be five or 10,000 people would follow him. They hung on his every word. To advocate for this kind of a leader was dangerous to say the least. But it's exactly what happens And so political strategy was abandoned, and now we see this Roman official go to bat for the Jewish teachers. See, Pilate knew what was happening was unbelievably unfair. The Jewish leaders knew it was unfair. The crowd knew it was unfair. Can you imagine being Barabbas? Not one word of his is ever recorded. He contributed nothing to what happened in this scene, and yet even he knew this thing that was playing out that probably would result in his freedom was undeniably unfair. See, Jesus knew what was happening was unfair. But it being unfair wasn't the craziest part. So when we look in the Gospel of John, John was standing a little closer to Jesus. He heard more of the conversation. And what John lets us in on is this, that several times Pilate goes to Jesus and he essentially tells him, hey, just give me something to work with. Defend yourself. I don't need much. You don't have to say a lot. But if you just give me a little to work with, I can set you free. And Jesus says nothing. Why? Because he wasn't a good speaker? No, thousands of people didn't show up to listen to him because he couldn't speak well. Maybe it was because he wasn't smart enough to defend himself, but that wasn't the case either. Over and over and over again through scripture, what we find is the Jewish, the brightest and the smartest Jewish leaders came and they challenged him with puzzles and traps and over and over again, he outsmarted them every single time. It wasn't because he wasn't a good speaker and it wasn't because he wasn't smart enough to defend himself. It was because Jesus was exactly where he wanted to be, doing exactly what he wanted to do. Jesus' silence both sealed his death sentence and signed the act of freedom for Barabbas. Was it unfair? Yep. But for us to simply settle to call it unfair is short-sighted. It's not enough. So when we begin to think purely that the moment was unfair, we, we can lend ourselves to the mindset that says that Jesus was out of control or that maybe the crowd turned and that's why things happened. We begin to feel sorry for Jesus or we think he got dealt a bad hand. But you have to get this. There was not a single moment that played out in this story in which Jesus was out of control. 
Jesus was not a victim. Don't you dare for a moment in hearing this story feel sorry for Jesus. And at a distance, it may seem like the leaders were calling the shots, but they weren't. It may seem like Pilate was in charge, but he wasn't. It may even sound a little bit like the crowd had swayed the courts, but they didn't. This was an absolutely unfair moment, but it was also intentional. Jesus was doing what Jesus intended to do. And the more I thought about this, the question came to my mind, why Barabbas? I mean, the the Romans had had crucified thousands of Jews. This wasn't an unusual practice. And there were all kinds of criminals like there would be in any society. Why not pick a liar or someone who cheated on their taxes? Why not step in and save someone who'd committed adultery? Why a murderer? Why someone whose life resulted in the death of all kinds of people? Why him? I think we have to go back to the beginning, this, this point that Matthew really wants us to drive in on, that his name was Jesus Barabbas, son of just some guy. He was a nobody. But I think, I think the point that Matthew makes isn't that Barabbas was a nobody. It was that Barabbas could be anybody. The sum of Barabbas's crimes were about as high in society as they could go. Barabbas's crimes covered anything that you've ever done. Anything that I've ever done, it wasn't that he was a nobody. It was that he could be anybody. And the more I thought about this, the more the reality sank in for me. I am Barabbas. You're Barabbas. We're no different. We're not without sin. We're not without failure. We're not without mistake. See, Jesus had to step in first like a man like Barabbas so that when it came to your life or your failures or your weaknesses or where you've blown it in life, there would be no question, no wondering, no doubt whether he would and has done the same for you, whether he would and has done the same for me, no matter our sin, no matter our baggage. Paul writes to a church in Rome and seems to reinforce this. He says first this, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We're all in the same boat. We are all Barabbas. Romans 6.23, not only have we all sinned, but it says this, that we all have the same sentence for our sins. For the wages of sin, what we earn from our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a gift because Jesus did for us exactly what he did for Barabbas. He took the penalty for our sins and he stepped in doing what we could not do, affording us a freedom we did not deserve, affording us life that we could not earn on our own. A pastor named Judah Smith said it this way, Jesus Messiah had to be treated like Jesus Barabbas so that Jesus Barabbas could be treated like Jesus Messiah. Jesus had to be treated like the penalty for our sins so that we could have the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. So that when God looks at you, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, if you've chosen to trust him, get this, no matter what your failures have been in the past, he doesn't see them anymore. Jesus took care of that. What he sees is the righteousness lived out and afforded by Jesus alone, credited to you, seen when God looks at you, in you. That is who he sees. 
And it's a gift that I have no part in apart from trusting him, that I can't earn for myself, that I can't make happen on my own. Paul says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus has extended a pardon to Barabbas and it's the same that he extends to you today. No matter what your history, no matter what your baggage, no matter what you're carrying around with you, Jesus has made a way for you to leave it here, now, today, and to be done with it. He stepped in on your behalf. There is no love like that apart from him. So maybe you're here today and you just need to stop waiting. You've danced the church dance. You've hung out. You've hung out on the fringes. You've got your stuff kind of kept secret to yourself and no one knows what you're carrying around with you. And the plea of the son of God today for your life is this, just let go. I have done what is necessary for your freedom. If you're here today, it's simple. All Jesus asks of us is this, trust me. That when you look on this scene, you see Jesus step in, you, you would believe that the life of the Son of God is valuable enough to be exchanged for your mistakes. I think God's Son's worth that. I think Jesus' life is worth that. He's so much greater, so much higher, so much better than I am, that the life he gave for me is enough to cover over my sin. And it's enough for you. Just simply trust him and you can leave that junk behind, being done with it, never to carry it again. And if that's you, here's what I wanna do. I wanna follow up with you. I'll be hanging out up here after service. I'd be glad to talk to you. But I want you to do a second thing. I want you to get that connect card back out and just write on the bottom of it, I am free. Because if you've trusted him today, that's exactly what you are. No negotiation, no questions, it's done. But I want to talk to a second group of people. Here's the one I dabble in all the time. See, a lot of times what we experience is this. Early on in following Jesus, we trust him. We leave the stuff behind, but somewhere along the way, we become convinced that we have to work for the rest of it. We trusted him to save the marriage in the front end. Or we trusted him for forgiveness for what we'd done or, or for freedom from the addiction or whatever it may be. But the next crisis we face in life, we think that we have to work our way out of it. We think the gospel doesn't extend there. We think we have to do it with our own effort. That's not the good news. It's not the gospel. It's the opposite of the good news. It's the opposite of the gospel. So there's not a moment in your life where you'll earn God's forgiveness. It's not going to happen. And, and the plea of God for you today, I believe the reminder he wants us to hear universally in the room today is this. You don't have to work for my forgiveness. Stop trying. I am still Savior, I am still Messiah, I am still forgiver, and you can return to me. Simply just, just, I'm here. Nothing has changed. You just started working when you didn't have to. And maybe you're here today and you're carrying a burden that you never had to. Because the Jesus who is good enough in the beginning of your relationship with him can handle whatever you're facing today. If it's a new addiction, if it's a new sin, if it's a new crisis, he's here and willing and available. As we close here in a moment in prayer, I just, I'd encourage you to go, God, I'm sorry. I started trying to do the heavy lifting and I still can't. You're my savior. Thank you for remaining. And so as we close, I just want to pray for you. 
I want to pray that God would send you out of here with more freedom than he came in with because God has stepped in for us. That's a great God. Jesus is an incredible Savior, and we have much to be thankful for, and we have a great price that has been paid for our freedom. Let's pray. God, thank you. There's no equation. There's nothing that we can work out in our heads that makes what you've done for us right or appropriate. But you did it for us out of your love. You did it for us because you chose to. So God, I pray for my friends who struggle to trust that you would do that for them. Remind them there's nothing they've done that's worse than Barabbas, that your grace is available to them, that your forgiveness is available to them. And today, God, I pray that you would right now in this moment help them to confidently let go, becoming a new creation through you. Holy Spirit, would you fill them in this moment? Would you fill them with your freedom, fill them with your love, fill them with your presence? God, for the rest of us that, that started out in grace and tried to work the rest of our lives, help us to experience that freedom again. Remind us that we are still your sons. We are still your daughters. You are still our God. Lord, I pray that you would fill us from the bottom of our feet to the top of our head with your Holy Spirit and send us out to be free men and women to express your love to a city that desperately needs to experience and know what we've experienced and known in you. Amen.